Welcome to the podcast, Most People Don't But You Do. Stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't. Don't. <laughs> We're a motivational storytelling and training company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. I am absolutely delighted, an incredible person to talk with today. When you think about the epitome of someone that does, that goes above and beyond, it is Rachel Drunkenmeyer. Drunkenmeyer. Drunken Miller. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's intimidating. It gets scary. Rachel Drunkenmiller. I know who you are, Rachel. And I'll probably just leave this, but Rachel <laughs> Drunkenmiller. There, I got it right. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you are joining and being able to share some ideas with our listeners. So let me tell you a little bit about Rachel. She is a keynote speaker, a facilitator, a leadership trainer. She has her own company for about the past three years or so called Unmuted. And there are some other little descriptions that I wanna be able to share with you. Living in an unmuted life is about uncovering your blind spots, illuminating your strengths, asking for what you need and want at work and at home, expressing yourself creatively, giving yourself permission to feel and so other amazing things. It's also about listening to your body and what it needs so you don't end up sick and burned out. Uh, Rachel, you have done many, many things and we'll get to several of those things, but I'm gonna stop talking and make sure at least I'm pronouncing Rachel properly. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's fun, isn't it? It's sort of like a good conversation starter. It, it is, it is. Yeah, and of course, you know, I want to make sure I'm getting everything perfect to show respect. No, I respect you. I will work on my pronunciation of things if that's okay. Those kind of things just don't bother me. Here, if it makes me feel any right, better, good. if it makes me feel any better, something funny for you. My husband, I we talked before, is an elementary school teacher. Yes. And his students come up with all different iterations of our last name. Yes. My favorite of which was I was visiting his school, picking him up after Christmas break one day, and um, there was this an elementary school student that said. Um, by Mr. Drunken Melon. And I thought, oh that my really gosh. Funny. Yeah, that's a good one. You need her t shirt with that one on. Yeah, it's Drunken Melon. Well, I'm so excited to be able to talk with you. And before we hit record, you and I are having some conversations. Just to know that I am so, um, I respect you. I look up to you. I celebrate all of your successes. And you have taught me so many things just by many of your postings. So I learn almost every single day from what you are sharing with others. So I'm grateful for that. Would, would like to talk about growing up. I know you're outside the Baltimore area right now. Did you grow up in that area? And tell us a little bit about life from the beginning. Yeah, I'm born and raised in Baltimore. My parents have lived in the same house for 42 years. Uh, and um, this is actually only my third like move housewise, just moved into a new house. And, you know, growing up, I was a pretty shy and quiet and reserved and timid kid. I was very studious. I was a bit serious. <laughs> I loved to read. I loved singing by myself. I didn't like to sing in front of other people. I was never a performer. People think, you know, when you get into this space as an adult that, oh, you've always performed. No, very not true. Mm -hmm. um, I was very shy and, and actually would have been terrified to do something like that as a kid. I have two siblings. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And my parents are both entrepreneurs. So my dad's a management consultant. And he says that he's terminally unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I grew up watching him. He would have clients come to the house, working out of the converted fourth bedroom in the house I grew up in. I never saw him go into an office other than the one down the hall. And so I had this model growing up of watching somebody that I was very close to yeah. just live a life that he wanted to live it on his terms. And, and then 25 years ago, my mother, after my parents went to a Tony Robbins conference, my dad would listen to Tony Robbins stuff growing up, you know, when I was growing up and he'd watch Oprah and, and they came back from a Tony Robbins conference and walked on coals. And they, I remember they walked in the front door. I was probably in eighth grade or, or ninth grade. And, and, and they came in and my dad said, mom's going to start her own business uh, as a financial planner. And so that was my model. I had a very unusual model of, wow. of what work could be, which is that work didn't have to be something that you slog through and it didn't yeah. have to be the thing you were doing so that you could live your life once you retired. That was just so counter to the model that I had. So I think it was embedded in me from a very young age that yeah. I could create a life that I wanted to. Yeah, which is incredible. And you were the first person out of probably 70 guests at this point that comes from parents that were both entrepreneurs. You and I, before we hit record, had talked about that it's not always easy. It's it's difficult, right? Starting your own company, having the reliability of, of, of financial responsibility, taking care of family, so many different things. We talked about that there's ups and downs, but it's definitely not easy. Some great days and some challenging days. Did you see that with your parents in growing up or were you protected from the ups and downs of their business model? I think I was pretty shielded from that, I mean, granted, I think just before I was born, mm -hmm. my dad had a couple of flops with his business. There were several things that didn't work out. My parents were both teachers before they started their own um, companies, interestingly. And so I never really saw it. I mean, I, I didn't ever feel like I went without. I wouldn't say like we would we would use things until they died, you know, like the cars mm -hmm. would be driven until they died. The TV we would have we wouldn't have the latest model of a TV. Um, but my parents really valued education. So we went to private school, even though they didn't, they didn't necessarily have a lot of means we were, yeah. I'd say, in, you know, kind of a middle, middle class. And so they chose to forgo things that maybe they wanted to do mm -hmm. so that my siblings and I could have a private school education because living in Baltimore city, yeah. the school system, public school system is unfortunately not so great. Or necessarily so safe and so it was really important to them that we received a really good education yeah um, which i so value yeah and is that when when did you when do you think that you started to become as you described yourself you were shy mm -hmm. you were curious you never would have imagined being on stages as an example when did that begin to turn around for you and when did you think that you knew this is what you wanted to do full time i know there's two questions in there but when did the shyness turn around? It's been a gradual process. It's been an unfolding. I mean, I went to, I think going to an all girls high school, I had this identity in, in grade school where I was like the smart kid who was the goody two shoes. That was like my identity. Mm -hmm. And there were certain aspects about that that I felt like I couldn't escape from because I went to school with the same kids from first to eighth grade, 27 kids in my class. I mean, <laughs> you were who you were, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I went to high school, I didn't, I went with no one that I knew and I got to, I got to have a new identity. And everyone there was smart. So it's not like, you know, and there were people that were, I knew that were well smarter than I was. And so yeah. I didn't have to be the smartest kid in the class anymore. I still worked really hard. I still cared. I still studied. I still was nutso about my grades, frankly. Like I've always been like, have to get straight A's on everything. I mean, and that, a lot of that connected to when I was little, 
little caveat I'll mention is that my parents went through a rough patch in their marriage and separated briefly when I was five mm-hmm. and then got back together, renewed their vows, all of that. So I saw the redemption, but there was also, there's an impact, there's a side effect when you're five years old and you move out of your house and, yeah. and your parents are fighting. And, and so I internalized all of that, right. And to, to become this one who was going to be just what people expected all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so when I got to high school, I was at this all girls high school and it's very empowering environment. The school is called Notre Dame prep. Mm-hmm. It was a very empowering environment for me. And I, and I felt like I got to try different things and, and, and put myself out there a little bit. Um, I signed up for voice lessons my senior year. I avoided choir all the years prior to that. Cause you know, it's very risky to audition, mm-hmm. but voice lessons were just one-on-one. So it felt very safe. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say the, for me, the big turn, I'd say the big turn would be my junior year of college mm-hmm. when I studied abroad in Spain. Or I left everything that I had known. I had lived in the same house my whole life, you know. And I lived in this other culture that was so vibrant and alive and for four months. And I was so scared to go. I wasn't going to go. And then all the adults in my life were like, are you nuts? You can, <laughs> you can go live in Europe for four months. You will yeah. regret this if you don't do it. Yeah. And so I went and, and I... I came back and I was different. You know, you, you go through an experience like that. I think all of us can think of an experience we've had those, you know, sliding door moments mm-hmm. where if you choose to slide the door this way, you have this life outcome. If you choose to slide it the other way, you might have a different outcome. And I it fundamentally changed things about how I showed up in the world when I came back from that. And I tried out for my first solo and gospel choir in college when I like two months after I came back from that. And I, I had a more balanced view of the world because it was not all about academics over there. People would say, hey, I'm going to be out of school next week because I'm going to Belgium, you know, and it was totally permissible. And I thought, what a rebel. <laughs> yeah. Did it, was it was it hard to move back? You know, initially, I, I think maybe not as hard as I thought it was going to be because I went right back into college and I was mm-hmm. like with friends and I realized, I think so often we're afraid of making a big decision because mm-hmm. we're afraid of missing out on our normal life. And can I tell you that next to nothing changed while I was gone? It's mm-hmm. like, we're going to miss a whole semester of college, which means what? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or you have a life-changing experience in another country. And yeah. I'm so glad that I was willing to take the risk. And does it still stay with you today? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It opened up. See, it, what that did is that unmuted so many aspects of, of, of who I am. That I had to be constantly put into situations where, you know, I was not fluent in Spanish. I had to be constantly put in situations where I didn't, it wasn't my first language, where I had to learn to interact with people. I had to learn to have, figure out how to get my needs met. Um, I had to learn to ask for what I wanted in a language that was not my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was yeah. a very picky eater prior to all of that. And mm-hmm. I went over there and I just had to try things that I was really nervous to have to try. And so I expanded yeah. my palate in all these ways and- Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, it's life-changing. And and as you just say that, so many of our listeners know me and the family situation. My, our daughter is moving to Hawaii on Monday. So she graduated from Virginia Tech a year early. She loved her experience and she did an internship for Pepsi. They offered her a job and they said, here are 10, 10 locations. Where would you like to go? She had never been to Hawaii, Rachel. And she said, I'd like to choose Hawaii. And we said, okay, because now is the time to be able to experience it. To your point, when she comes back two years, three years, however long, whenever she is ready to come back and she's ready to come back, you're right, nothing is going to change. 
Now, on the other side, we have a son who is studying in the Czech Republic, and he's going to film school. Rachel, he had never been at a sleepaway camp. And when he said after he got his associate's degree studying film locally in Northern Virginia, he said they have a program in right outside of Prague. I'd like to go to the Czech Republic. And same thing. We said, go for it. So he's home for the summer. And what we have also noticed is not much has changed here for him, but he is able to think differently, do differently. He's more self-reliant. He's more confident. And we were at a farmer's market this past weekend. And he said, I almost forgot that I could go up and ask for things in English <laughs> because right, English is not real popular in his little village outside of, of Prague. So I love what you said. When you came back, was it, um, let me see how I can phrase this. Did, when you came back to college, again, not much had changed. Were you looking at ways of, I need to go back to Spain, I need to continue to travel internationally because I grew up in Baltimore, I'm going to school somewhat locally. Of you know, my parents have been in the same home for 42 years. Was there ever an attempt to go back internationally? You know, there wasn't. I came back and you know, junior year is, well, I came back, I met a guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then I didn't start dating until a year and a half later and now I've been with him for 16 years um, and married for 11. So, you know, I, I was excited to come back. I was excited to, to see people, to see my friends. And, uh -huh. and so there was this, there's this novelty. It was almost this novelty to an experience that would otherwise have been just kind of normal yeah. and repetitive and predictable. Mm -hmm. And I also found that my sense of empathy, I would imagine most people that have lived, a, a, you know, in another, another country other than the one they were born in, would recognize the increase in empathy that you experience because I would see somebody I remember I saw somebody on campus they look kind of lost mm -hmm. and they they started to speak and I could tell that English was not their first language and I started speaking to them in Spanish and I saw just this levity in their wow. face wow. and this feeling of feeling understood and I, I still was not I've never I've never been fluent in Spanish mm -hmm. you live in a country for four months you learn enough to be able to get by and and it's it, it was such a powerful way to connect that I wasn't expecting. Right. And I've since my husband and I, we went on a missions trip to Nicaragua um, nine years ago. And so I, I brushed up on some of my Spanish there and was able to, as a result of that, you know, communicate in certain ways that I wouldn't have been otherwise. But it's just given me this sense of appreciation mm -hmm. and the sense of empathy for people that feel out of place or for people that don't feel understood or they don't feel like the way that they're communicating um, is, is reaching somebody. And, and, and I know what that I know what the pain of that and the yeah. frustration of that can feel like. Yeah. And your what did you study in school in college? Psychology. OK, so that was right along your uh, your thought process, your innate sense of being able to help others and make other other people feel comfortable. Did you get that sense? Is that why you were studying psychology? I've just always been fascinated by human behavior. And mm -hmm. frankly, I've wanted to like understand myself better. I've always just been such an introspective. I've always been a highly introspective person. I've, I have journals that go back to fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I've always been somebody who's been curious. I've always been a thinker. I've always been an observer. My parents said when I was a baby, I would sit in the playpen for like an hour and a half and just amuse myself. Like I, <laughs> I've always been a pretty self-contained unit, like to have the capacity to do that. Yeah. And, and so 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what and, and, and I don't think that that's it, it, the reason why I asked the question is that a lot of people, like if you talk to comedians, comedians are probably not naturally outgoing, but they are looking for humor in their lives. And that's why they like being up on stage because they're almost forced to for their passion, for their job, to be able to find humor in life and then share it with others because it helps them as well. Do you think you were studying psychology, and I guess you were, to be able to understand yourself better, but then when did you realize that you wanted to be able to help people with what you were learning? Did that come your first job, your second job? What do you think? I mean, I worked at a counseling center as an internship when I was in college, and then when I got out, I thought I wanted to go right to get a master's or PhD in in psychology, but at the time, you know, this was I guess, okay, 16 years ago. And when I was making these decisions, and I, at the time, what it felt like the focus of psychology was, was try to fix broken things, Mm -hmm. or to have people come to you and tell you all their problems, and to diagnose. And I, growing up in the Oprah Tony Robbins world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was much more interested in what at the time was actually a very new wave of psychology, which was positive psychology. That, That work was the early 2000s, and I graduated from college in 2006. And so that even, that wasn't even an option for the coursework when I was an undergrad, you know, um, positive psych. And so what I found was the work that I was doing in wellness, I got into the wellness industry in 2007, corporate wellness, mm-hmm. because it combined my interest in health and human behavior, which was always something that intrigued me, probably because I had a lot of health issues growing up. And it also connected back to what I saw my dad do as a management consultant. And so I, I saw that it sort of was combined this, this, this focus on workplace culture, employee engagement and well-being was all interconnected. And it seemed to hit on a lot of things that had, had been areas of interest for me. And so yeah. that's what got me into that field at a time where, I mean, 2007, corporate wellness wasn't... Wasn't really a thing. It was really a thing that many people were talking about. Yeah. And I don't think people are talking about empathy either. <laughs> no, I wasn't either, to be fair. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, okay. So then into your, your first couple of jobs. So into wellness, um, working for companies for over 10 years, as an example, did you get a sense that things could be different or things could be better? Is that why you started your own business? Yeah, well, I was always what I think something people don't talk about very often is I was what's called an entrepreneur. So I was very entrepreneurial because of the model I had from my parents. I did not believe, I guess, in my I'm a little bit of a tenacious, somewhat rebellious, stubborn person Mm -hmm. (laughs) when it comes to certain things. And I don't really like to be told what to do. So when I came into this role, I was an I interned at this company during the summers in in college and I was an admin assistant and I just they treated me treated me well and you know bought me lunches and and celebrated with the birthday cake on my birthday and I thought this is a nice place people are nice to work with and but it's an employee benefits consulting firm nobody says when they're like 12 years old hey you know what I want to do when I grow up I want to work in insurance and but that's what I ended up doing and so I happened to meet someone who was the wellness manager of a gym and I that's when I learned about wellness and corporate wellness in 2007 got into it I made up my job but I want to be a wellness coordinator. I don't really know what that person does, but I'm going to figure it out. Uh-huh. And then I made up a job for myself and then I upskilled. I, I, I continued to get training and pursue knowledge and insight. And then I was like, well, hey, I, and then I became a health coach. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree in health science. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a wellness 
specialist. And then, and then I just keep making up my jobs. And I was like, and I'm the wellness director. And then I was recognized in 2015 by a group called the Wellness Council of America as the number one health promotion professional in the United States. And I was like, I'm gonna use that. So then I said, I'm gonna be the director of wellness. And then the language in the industry changed to well-being around 2015. And I said, I wanna be at the forefront of this. And, and so I'm the director of well-being, you know, and that's what I ended up, you know, in 20, 19 by the time I left that's what my position was and I had essentially created an entire department an entire wow. offering within our business that did not otherwise exist and it was a differentiator for us in the marketplace because we eventually rolled up into a larger um, organization called Alara group which now has I think over 3,000 employees or something and I really started a lot of what even some things that are still used today in terms of the model that what a story you created up your own titles based on what your passions were yeah so what what prompted you then to leave to, oh. to take the risk and i know you have multiple things that you are founder of volunteer with and and starter of but what prompted you do you remember mm -hmm. oh a lot of things did one <laughs> in 2012 i thought i was going to leave in 2012 so this is helpful for anybody that like that might be listening to this that wants to make a move that wants to make it, but you're feeling this sense of restless discontent i was feeling restless discontent for a while and in 2012 well i had an attitude problem at a certain point in time okay because i was becoming resentful of my job or that i wasn't heard or whatever and so i copped a bit of an attitude there was a conversation that was had with me with of like hey there's not enough for you to do with wellness so you can either take on an admin role here, be an account coordinator, or we'll give you three months to find another job. Mm -hmm. That happened in 2009, I think. And I was like, oh, shoot, <laughs> like that's not how this works. And so then I found other ways to be valuable. Like I became the RFP editor. I was, an, I was a writing tutor in college. And so I just found other ways to be valuable that had nothing to do with wellness, just so mm -hmm. I could basically um, sort of like cover my nut being there, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, And so what happened was, you know, I thought about leaving and starting my own health coaching business and doing that, but I, I don't know, there were certain things that just kept drawing me to stay there and to stick around. And then in 2016, one of the catalysts was that I burned out and got mono. I got, I was diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus, which is an acute form of mono. Mm -hmm. I had completely burned myself out at work. Just go, 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 perform, prove, impress, achieve. I had just gotten that award. I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders to keep being the best. And so that was an awakening moment for me to realize the way that you're doing, you're the director of well-being and you are totally burned out, yeah. Rachel. <laughs> yeah. There's a lack of alignment in your life here. And so that made me start, and then I started talking about it. And I started talking about, as I was recovering from it, why I burned out and I was honest, because it was this feeling of not enough and this fear of, like that was the root of it. It was the, this disconnection and this fear of not being enough, which is what so many of us feel. You have to be good enough you know, in order to be loved, in order to be accepted, in order to be worthy. And I really struggled with that. And that was an awakening moment for me. And then about a year later, I started working with like different like coaches who were helping me understand things about myself mm -hmm. that I really needed to understand about why I'd gotten myself into that spot. Mm -hmm. Because I you, believe that- Yeah, were you, Rachel, were you chasing awards? Were you chasing perfection? Were you chasing money? Um, it was more so recognition. Like I was so, I, I was so almost like dependent on other people on external validation. Mm -hmm. 
And the pressure that I put on myself was, Ooh, they just said you're the number one in the country. You have yeah. to have all the answers. You have to do the best. You have to have the best ideas. Like you can't screw up. Um, mm. You shouldn't really need to ask for help. These are all stories I told myself and it got mm. me right into a spot of burnout. And so when and I, at that, and at that point, were you married? Oh yeah. I got married in 2011. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. So you're with your husband. Um, how did he react to that? Is oh, he a balance to, is he the same way as you work, work, work? I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Or is he a balance? He is so internally defined and content. It drives me crazy. <laughs> he's That's just, why it works. He's okay with himself. Like he's just okay with himself. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't yeah. have, um, he's, he's just content. He very much lives in the present moment. Um, he's not like a striver, but he's done things like he's done an Ironman triathlon. So it's not like you know, it's a bump on it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he cares about what he does. He's a phen phenomenal teacher. He's a wonderful coach, um, like sports coach and stuff. Mm -hmm. But for, I remember I was sitting across from him because I had missed our Valentine's dinner in the February of 2017. Cause I was at the doctor's office getting diagnosed with mm -hmm. mono and we didn't make up that dinner until four months later. And I sat across from him at this restaurant and I remember I, I for the first time in six months, because I had started to get sick in like November of the year prior. And I looked at him across the table and I reached out and I held his hand and he's not somebody who's all that emotionally expressive. And um, I reached out and held his hand for the first time in six months. I said, you know, how are you doing? And he kind of paused and then he started to get like teary eyed and he said, you know, it's been, it's been hard. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to give. I had, I lost my voice. I, when you have mono, you sleep 12 hours a night and don't feel rested. I had no, you know, intimacy drive. I had nothing to give him. You know what I mean? Like I was, I, I was just trying to like get back and recalibrate to just even get to a baseline level of energy. Yeah. And he was there, you know, he's somebody, he's somebody who has, I've never felt the need to impress him. Mm -hmm. And that's a compliment. Like I've just mm -hmm. always felt accepted by him. I've never felt like if I did this a little bit more, he'll love me anymore. Like I've never. Yeah. Like and isn't that one of the reasons why the universe paired you two together? Because if you were having this self talk of not being enough, right? Not being enough to be loved, that was causing you to be sick. Well, here is your husband that you don't need to impress. He's going to love you regardless. Pretty, pretty amazing how things, how things happen. So then getting back to, you were burnt out. You were uh, feeling like you were not, not being your best. Then you started talking about it. Yeah. Is that what then led to here's an opportunity. There's other people. If I share my story, there's other people that probably could hear and benefit by listening to what I'm going through. And maybe I can help them. Is that how it started? Yeah. I mean, I started having people come to me. Like I started doing sessions on being burnout. I got some pushback from leadership around doing that. They're like, she's the director of well-being. Why is she talking about burnout? And I was mm -hmm. like, <laughs> if I know all that I know, and I have all the training that I have, and I'm still here. I yes. have to talk about this. Like, yes. I have a platform. I have to talk about this. And so 
I started to get more emboldened and I started to be more vulnerable. I was not someone traditionally who was vulnerable. In front. I mean, following me now, you might think like, really, you probably have all, no, <laughs> mm. I didn't. I was very guarded about what I let people know about the hard parts of my life. For most of my life, I did not let anybody see any of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't even, I wasn't even honest about it myself, to mm -hmm. myself, you know? Mm -hmm. But I found tremendous freedom in just being open and honest about what I was struggling with. And I found that it connected me to people and it made me relatable. And, and people started coming up to me after sessions and, and, and sometimes they were in tears. I had people follow up with me on LinkedIn and say, there's a woman I was doing a training around like burnout and becoming your best self, you know, four or five years ago. And this was at a large a global consulting firm. I was working with 200 project managers. And one of the women came up to me or, or messaged me on LinkedIn afterwards, two days later, she said, I've already made a huge change in my life. I was like, dude, it's been two days. I was there for 50 minutes. Like, what did you do? Yeah. And, um, and she said, you know, there's, there's something that you asked in that session that I had heard from another, another coach and mentor, Simon Bailey, who said, who gets the best of you and who gets the rest of you? Mm -hmm. And I asked that question because I knew the answer to that question in my own life. Like, yeah. my, my husband got the rest of me. Everybody that I love really deeply got the, got the leftovers, you know? Yeah. And she said, I heard that. I went back, talked to my partner. I'm a single mom. I travel for work, split my time between Northern Virginia and somewhere down south. And... And she said, I, I just realized it's taking the toll on me. And so I went and I asked my boss if I could be rolled off of that travel position and just be based in Virginia. Mm -hmm. My boss said, yes. And she said, Rachel, I slept better last night than I have in a year. Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's not about things. And as you referenced Simon, Simon T. Bailey, he and I used to work together a long time ago oh. at Hyatt Hotels. Okay. And he was one of the people when I wrote my 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 book, my first book, it's my only book so far, but he was the one that gave me advice on how to do it. And um, yeah, and I'll really be forever grateful for learning from him as well. So the best of me, not the rest of me. Is it difficult to remind yourself now? Or are you in that space of feeling content that you are good enough, that you are loved, that you are respected? Are you in that place now? And how do you remind yourself to stay there? You know, I'd say that happens on a continuum. I don't say it's an absolute. I mm -hmm. think for me, there's always been this sense. So from a strengths finder, anyone listening to this, that's strengths finder familiar, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like achiever, strategic, I think competition, futuristic, and maybe activator ideation. Mm -hmm. So my wiring, my wiring, is to be this like force of nature. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> that's my, that's like in my DNA, right? Yes. And what I've gotten better at, I'd say what I've gotten better at is being able to celebrate when I've done something well. What I used to do if I did something well, and I still fall into this trap of upping the ante, of being like, well, you did well. Okay, well, duh, of course you do well. Like that's expected. Next, you know, and now if I do something really well, like I'll really celebrate it. Like my husband and I will say, hey, let's have a, let's go to this really nice hotel that seems like a total indulgence and a complete splurge and let's not feel guilty about it and let's get massages and let's have dinner and let's get like, there's, there's different things or hey, let's really go after buying our dream house. Let's do that. Like there's, you know, my dad says as an entrepreneur, if, if you're not giving yourself cookies along the way, <laughs> you're just working hard like it's is it it's not worth it you know and so this is my i'm like living in this giant cookie now i feel like where <laughs> i worked really really hard you know after 
years of being in that position. And I know you had asked like what, what prompted the shift. It was over time, these little nudges of things where I was getting validation from people. And when I would speak and I'd say, oh gosh, I want to just do that all the time. Yeah. I want to do that more and more and more. And then, you know, I, I did an assessment called the Harrison assessment in the spring of 2018 or 2019. And a therapist looked across the room for me and she said, based on your results, I'm trying to understand how you were possibly working for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So like I had these little affirmations and confirmations and then I went through a speaker training heroic public speaking in the fall of 2018 and so the spring of 2019 mm -hmm. and being in community with other people that were doing the thing I wanted to do that were challenging me that were affirming me that were inviting that inviting more to be drawn out of me that they saw even more in me than was than I realized was there that all of that stuff collectively yes those things were all the catalysts, including people within my own company saying, Rachel, like, have you ever thought about leaving and just doing your own thing and working with us as a, when you had your own coworkers yeah. asking you that, you're like, what am I missing here? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty strong for sure. Yeah. So for it's sure. all of that. That's what yeah. all collectively led to, but the burnout was the catalyst to like, yeah. Rachel, you are not, you are a, you are a take charge person. You are somebody who wants to run the show and mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that and just acknowledge that and the only way you're going to run the show is if you work for yourself <laughs> and you had to embrace your talent because that's what the universe needed from you yeah love hearing that when you when we go back to talking about the wellness and well-being and that it's things that you had even struggled with and you needed to be reminded of having balance and celebrate the wins and eat the cookies and give yourself cookies what advice would you have for people now that are struggling with the lack of balance. And I'll just share with you, I'm doing a webinar a little bit later today, and this will take a few weeks for us to get this podcast out, but I'm doing a webinar with a couple of industry experts. And I was playing around with the title and it was about moving from busy, uncertain, and tired to calm, confident, and energetic. And that sounds good, but then I was talking to a few other people and I, we came up with the idea of embracing the uncertainty of suck, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Uncertainty is not fun. It's not pleasant. There is a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. We tried not to watch too much of the news or to get too engaged in social media because a lot of it is not necessarily positive. So what advice would you have for our listeners on how to remain positive and how to maintain balance? And I know that's a really, this is what you're hired to do to go and speak yeah. on this, but just one or two takeaways perhaps for our listeners that are listening to this, thinking about, you know what, I'm burnt out. Mm -hmm. I need to make a change. I need to do something different. I don't need to chase external validation. What would you share? Yeah, do we have another hour? Um, so yeah, we yeah we do. Yeah, and then I'll get your name and your last name right. So good. Right. You're pretty <laughs> funny. So one of the things I would say, I would not necessarily encourage everyone to just be positive. I would say I think that's part of the problem that we have in our culture is that the ex that's the expectation is just like, you know what, things are hard, but just what I believe and what I've learned and uh -huh. a big part of my unmuting is giving myself permission to feel the unpleasant emotions just what so many of us want to get away from. Like, I'll tell you, when we were moving, so it's been, the past month has been nuts. We were 30 days to close on this house, yeah. sight unseen, no inspection, no appraisal. I mean, people look like we're absolutely nuts. 
I traveled to New Orleans for a week. I've been traveling back and forth to Northern Virginia. I've had lots of client engagements. We've been closing on that. It's so, it's been so much moving yeah. boxes, unpacking. And Monday night, I just went to my, or Sunday night after all this weekend, I just went to my husband and, you know, he apologized for the way he had shown up and, and we just, he just hugged me and I just cried for like two or three minutes. And I just mm -hmm. said, I'm just so exhausted. Mm -hmm. I am, and I let my, I, what I've gotten so good at doing, I'm so proud of myself for this. Cause for so much of my life, I did not do this. Yeah. If I'm sad, I let myself be sad. If I'm angry, I let myself be angry. They're, <laughs> they're fleeting, right? Emotions are impermanent. And yeah. so I've been able to acknowledge that if I just let myself feel the thing that I feel in the moment that I feel it, not necessarily like lashing out at people. I don't think that's healthy. It's, it's not, um, but processing it in an, in a safe environment with my husband or with my therapist, I see a therapist regularly mm. in a journal, right? When we write down our feelings or thoughts, especially about difficult circumstances, especially about unpleasant emotions, it actually helps us more effectively process them and integrate them. Yes. And then from there, once I've given myself permission to feel because all emotions want a voice, once mm -hmm. those emotions have had their voice heard, okay, fear, I see you. Sadness, I see that you're sad. It makes sense that you're sad. Mm -hmm. All right, now that we acknowledge it, okay, who can I reach out to that I could connect with right now that might be a source of encouragement? So I have yeah. certain people in my life that I'll reach out to. I might ask for prayer. I might just say, I'm having a really tough day. Can you, do you, I just call them. Certain people, I just call, and I know they'll answer the phone every time. Yeah. And I call them, and I know after I get off a 20-minute phone call with them, I'm just going to feel better. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like, who are those people? For everyone listening, who are those people? Yeah. Brene Brown calls it your square squad. Who are the people in your life whose opinions really matter to you that when you spend time with them, you walk away feeling like your bucket's fuller? Who are those people? Write down a list of those people. Put them mm -hmm. on speed down on your phone. Like, yeah. so those yeah. are so, some of the No, I love it, Rachel, so powerful. And what I have learned just from the things that you were saying and that I've learned from other people is that our thoughts are not necessarily who we are. And there was a study done, I think by Cleveland Clinic that noted that the average person has 60,000 thoughts a day. 90% of them are repetitive and 85% of them are negative. And recognize what I'm learning from you is recognize that we are having a thought, a negative thought. We're allowed to feel a certain way, but our thoughts and our mind is not necessarily who we are. And we don't need to succumb to that. We can feel a certain way, but we don't need to allow it to dictate who we are. Yeah, I have a tangent to that, that or an addition to that that may be helpful for you and for anybody Please. listening. Yeah. So when we're talking about feelings specifically, a lot of times we'll say, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm frustrated. When you use an I am statement, that's an identity statement. Any I am statement is an identity statement. So instead, the shift is, because if your identity statement, if that's who you are, and you're telling yourself this is who I am, it's going to be harder for you to shift out of that state because you're like trying to undo a part of your identity. Yes. Instead, you say, I feel, I feel yes. sad. Or, I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing sadness. I'm noticing anger. Right. If you're an observer of the emotion, because you are not your emotions, right? You're not your emotions. You are not your feelings. Feelings are things that we feel in the body, tightness in the chest, tightness in the jaw. Yes. tightness in the throat for me it's often tightness when i'm in a place of sadness or fear or anger that's what i experience some type of tension yeah and i've gotten i work with a somatic therapist which i will forever and ever encourage anyone who's struggling with any type of trauma trauma can be little t trauma right trauma doesn't have to be you had some horrific thing happen to you it can be an accumulation of little things that just completely uprooted you mm -hmm. or unsettled you so somatic therapist s-o-m-a-t-i-c 
okay. what they do is they really understand mind-body integration. And so when they're working with you, they'll even say, like my therapist, if I'm talking about something, she'll stop me in the middle if I'm getting really heated. Yeah. Okay, so just pause. What are you noticing in your body right now? Notice, notice your feet. Notice your hands. Sometimes my hands are like this, or my feet are, my heels are lifted up, or I'm hunched forward. Okay, shift your posture, right? And it's, it's like, notice what you're feeling. But first of all, just notice it. We're yeah. so disconnected from our bodies. We're so disconnected from our bodies. And the body has so much information and so much wisdom that we just miss because we're so in our flipping heads all the time. Always, always. Oh, it, outstanding, outstanding information. What I also just learned from you is if the resources that you have, if you want to pick up the phone and you talk to someone, you have three or four people that you talk to that will make you feel better. What I think the value of what you're doing and what others are doing and what I'm trying to do also is that when I'm sharing stories, when I'm sharing messages, when I'm posting on LinkedIn and I'm posting on social media, that is a way as a reminder to here, let's get in the right frame framework. Maybe I can't talk to Rachel because I don't have her direct line or whatever the case is. And I know you're open to talking to everybody, but maybe I'm going to listen to a podcast in which Rachel shares some things. Maybe I'm going to look at her social media. Maybe I'm going to read a LinkedIn post that is a good reminder and it's going to help me. Um, I think that that's just so critical. Uh, Rachel, I could literally talk to you for an hour. I do have one last question for you. Yeah. From a leadership perspective, and please know that I'm so grateful for this. And I know our listeners are definitely learning a lot from you as well. From a leadership perspective, perspective what individuals are going through right now with uncertainty? Mm-hmm. Is there any advice? We talked about the individual, but from a leader thinking about others, mm-hmm. what suggestion would you have for leaders right now to make sure that they are taking care of their team, their employees? Yeah, a couple things. One, I would say, do some of your own work. Like, if you are not seeing a therapist, if you are not working with a coach, I think it's important. I think it's ideal for leaders to have one of each. They provide different benefits and they have different trainings. Um, like, if you have not worked out your own stuff, you're just going to project that onto your people. So that's one thing that I would say, or even if it's a spiritual leader or something, but just like make sure that you're just not operating out of a vacuum here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another thing I would say is to be honest and be vulnerable. People want, in the midst of crisis, I know Gallup has done some research that people need trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Those are four things people need in the midst of crisis. And so what they need from you, one of the ways we build trust is by being honest. One of the ways we build trust is by doing what we say we're going to do. One of the ways we build trust is by asking for feedback, genuinely listening to people and acting on it, right? So what can I do to build trust? How can I show genuine compassion by reaching out to people and saying, hey, how are you doing? Here's something I've been struggling with. How can we best support you right now? Do you have the support that you need? What would that look like if you don't? What support do you need from us to be able to show up here fully? Um, and then, you know, st- any type of stability is, are there certain rituals as a leader you can have where every week you send out this update on Thursday, even if the update is we have no update? <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or once I have a, a company I'm talking to right now, a prospective company that has a Zoom all, they used to do it once a month, now they do it like every six weeks, where they bring the whole company, the 220 people together, and bring them together, the CEO shares updates and messages, they do fun things together, so what can you do to create some, anything that is a degree of consistency, predictability, routine for people? Because routine in the midst of uncertainty is grounding. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, hope. How can you cast a vision and how can you invite your employees in to cast a vision for a future 
together because what's what's really hurting a lot of leaders right now is they're making all the decisions at the top and then they're letting people know how it is and then they're surprised when their people are leaving you should not be surprised when people are leaving if they were not involved in the decisions that affect them yes you should not be surprised like yeah. i'm not sorry <laughs> yeah. so ask your people bring together representative groups of people who cross the organization when you're making a decision and think about how could we make this decision in the best interest of multiple stakeholders not just the people that benefit the most financially yeah and that takes a lot of self-confidence from a leader's perspective. They need to feel secure in who they are and what they are. They need to know their talents. They need to know their, their strengths and also their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And can they surround themselves with people that can make up for what they are not perhaps good at? Yeah. There's a story that I share. Are you a buffalo or a goose? And I'll just share this with you quickly as one of the final stories. And I ask individuals when I'm presenting, are you a buffalo or a goose? And people don't know the context. So they'll raise their hand half as they feel like ah, I'm a buffalo, half I'm a goose. Well, the whole point is that if you think about a buffalo and a herd of buffalo, why they almost became extinct is that hunters and settlers would kill the lead buffalo. And when they did that, they had no direction. So the rest of the herd would just stop, making them very easy prey and easy game for the rest of the hunters. Now you compare that to a flock of geese, they fly in formation and they take turns leading. The goose that is good at, at uh, navigation if they're lost, takes charge. The goose that is really great at finding food if the flock is hungry, they take lead. And when they do that, they they fly more efficient, efficiently. It's 70% more efficient. So are people buffaloes that it needs to be my way or the highway or are they geese in which they share responsibilities? And that's just, it's a quick little story that I share to allow people to think it's okay to share responsibilities. If I'm confident enough in myself, I can share responsibilities. Yeah, and ask for help. I mean, so often leaders feel like I have to have all the answers. No yeah. one expects you to have all the answers. They expect you to be someone who can figure out and leverage other people and resources to get the answers, but they don't expect you to be the one to do it all yourself. Yeah, outstanding, outstanding. Rachel, I cannot thank you enough. Do you have any closing words before I compliment you one more time? Um, you know, I would just say being willing to be willing to turn the mirror on yourself, you know, it's uncomfortable, but I just, I, I've found such fulfillment and I've gotten feedback from both my business coach and my therapist. They said that we work with a lot of people and there's not many people that are, and I'm not saying this to, to brag. I'm just candidly, this is a grounded confidence moment for me. Yes. I like, I, they're like, we don't see many people that are willing to be as honest with themselves as you are. And yeah. I've just found such tremendous freedom in doing that. So I wouldn't, for anyone that might be afraid of that, it's scary to turn the mirror on yourself and, and to see things we may not want to see, but there is such tremendous freedom on the other side of turning the mirror on yourself and inviting other people to reflect back mm. what they see so that you can grow. So powerful, simple, yet so powerful. And a reminder, a lot of people know that they should, but most people don't which ties into exactly why I wanted to speak with you. Most people don't, but you do. So Rachel, Rachel Druckenmiller, keynote speaker, facilitator, leadership trainer, and founded of Unmuted. If you would like more information or to connect with Rachel, I'll make sure that we have the link in the bio in the show notes, but her last name is spelled D-R-U-C-K-E-N-M-I-L-L-E-R. The website is unmutedlife.com. So grateful to know you. Thank you for being so real, so authentic, 
and for inspiring so many people by sharing your story. And thank you for allowing us to share the story with these listeners. 